come to me I hear a sound busy like traffic headed out of this town Hello listeners, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Sibel and this is Office Hours, the show highlighting ongoing research in STEM, the social sciences, the humanities, and art. Today I'm talking to Dr. Nina Bandelge, a former professor of sociology at UCI and a current fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, here to talk about the economy and sociology of parenting. So first of all, what do you mean when you say the economy of parenting? Sure, I'd be happy to tell you a little bit about this. So. I mean all the activities that involve money that parents do for their children. So that would include money they spend on kids, what we call parental expenditures, um, you know, food, clothing, but also childcare, transportation, healthcare, extracurricular activities are a big one. Um, actually, I wanted to ask you, Sibel, how much do you think it costs to raise children? Let's say to the age of 17, how much money do parents spend on that? I don't know, maybe half a million? Okay, well, you know, it's not actually an uh, out-of-the-ballpark guess. So it very much depends, right, on what uh, what is the family doing. But let's say on average, and by a report that was published by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, who does these assessments of the costs of raising children. They estimated $233,610 from birth through age 17, um, and that was in 2015. So that's on average, about a quarter million dollars on average. But many families spend much more than that. The figure I just gave you does not include college. Mm -hmm. So this is up to the age 17. And then the cost of college is in addition to that. And that could be, you know, $20,000 per year for public schools or $50,000 per year for private schools. So we need to add about $100,000 to that, to that average quarter million. But to come back to the idea of economy of parenting, it's not just the money that parents spend in expenditures. I argue that we need a broader understanding of money that would include savings that parents put aside, financial investments that they may make and put under children's names, um, and debt, uh, what parents borrow for the sake of their children most notably mortgage debt, so they you know, can reside in good school neighborhoods, as they say, or um, most importantly, increasingly over time, also education debt. We know that college students take a lot of debt on themselves for supporting themselves to go to college, but increasingly parents have been shouldering that college debt to send their kids to college. So in brief, the economy of parenting are all these monies in plural that parents spend, save, invest, and also borrow to do the best they can for their kids. Right. And how did you get started on researching this? What made you decide to choose this topic? Well, I would say um, I love money. Who doesn't? I love studying money. Uh, 
putting the pun aside. So I'm an economic sociologist. This means that I study economic topics, money, investment, debt, but I look at them through different set of lenses than economists would as a sociologist. So my lenses focus my gaze, let's say on three things at the very um, individual level, this micro level, as we say, it's about the meaning of money, emotions involved in economic decision-making. Then at a more intermediate interactional level, I look at social relations and money. And at the um, broader macro level, I think about these money systems, uh, large scale um, systems of capitalism, of um, transition from socialist to market economies, uh, globalization, financialization. And um, all this makes me very curious about what people do in their lives as it concerns money and economy. Um, and I've written different, different things on the subject, but this topic of economy of parenting, I suppose has its origins going back to graduate school. Uh, I went to Princeton University and studied with some very, very uh, famous economic sociologists. And if I may call her that, the founding mother of American economic sociology, Professor Viviana Zelizer, who wrote this book called Pricing the Priceless Child. So that book is a classic. It's, um, you know, I recommend it uh, to, to everyone. It documents the transformation from an era when children were useful for the family. They provided economic value. Kids worked on the farm. Families had more children to have more helping hands. And then with the turn of the 20th century and the early 1900s, the notion that children should work became disputed. Child labor became a hot topic. Uh, insurance companies began selling life insurance for children whose parents uh, thought of kids more in emotional terms rather than economic value terms. Uh, so... Um, and that happened mostly for uh, middle-class families. Uh, Professor Zelizer in his book, Pricing the Priceless Child, traced the transformation from the economically useful to the emotionally priceless child. But, and this is where the link is, I take this analysis to the more contemporary times. And I argue that we have uh, a new idea of this priceless child these days uh, that is, uh, we don't, as parents, only love our children, but in, we invest in our children emotionally, time, but most importantly, we invest money in our children. So I link the rise of this investment child to the changes in society, both culturally, what it means to be a parent today, uh, and it primarily means engaging in intensive investment parenting, as sociologists have argued, not just letting your kids be free and find their creative way in life, but uh, really spending time with them and money for them to help them uh, reach their potential and secure their future. 
And also economically, we see the rise of finance in society at this very broad macro level that I spoke of. And this has made available different um, financial instruments for parents to use. So going back to different monies that parents use for kids. Uh, two big examples for that are, uh, for instance, the 529 savings plans. These are plans offered by states for parents to invest pre-tax dollars for kids' college. They are earmarked, they are targeted to uh, college education. And then there are also federal plus loans, parent loans for undergraduates offered by the federal government to help support kids uh, to go to college. These instruments have not existed previously. And then there are also private banks, savings plans and loans that parents can take. There are home equity loans. Uh, uh, parents um, can borrow against the value of their home to support the high cost of college education these days. So all these different monies have become increasingly available uh, in this economy of parenting that I'd argue about. And how did you collect your data with these contemporary parents? So um, the data come from large data sets, uh, two of them. One is the Survey of Consumer Finances, which is a data from a nationally representative sample of US households. It's collected three times you know, every three years. Um, and it's referred to as a gold standard for um, analyzing economic matters of families. Then there's another data set uh, often used by sociologists called Panel Study of Income Dynamics. And by panel, they mean that they collect information from the same families that they track over time. And that's very valuable for an analysis since you can see what happens, for instance, once ha families have children or at different ages of, of children. These are quantitative data. Um, and, and an important additional source are qualitative data, interviews with families. Uh, I received a grant from the National Science Foundation to uh, hire some of my wonderful PhD students to help me with interviewing families with children, mostly families who have at least one child uh, that is in middle school or around that age. Uh, and we were able to, um, through that grant money, also give families that we interview a small gift to acknowledge their time and participation. Uh, we were planning to interview about 100 families and we're at about 98 before COVID. Um, and then, of course, uh, had to hit the pause button. Everything got reshuffled. But we are now resuming to add um, more families hopefully 20 more, to integrate some insights of the impact of COVID. So that is still ongoing, and we'll see. Um, and of course, all of these interviews are um, now not in person, but uh, over the phone. I also look at various documents to put this analysis in a broader historical perspective. So it's called mixed methods, multiple sources of data and multiple ways of analysis to get a really broad, full picture. That's great. And what do you think is the cause of this change to investment parenting? That's a difficult question. Um, 
and uh, one that social scientists struggle with often, what comes first, right? Uh, what causes something else? And in reality, a lot of social forces work together and interact. Uh, so I trace some of these developments years back to parenting advice. So I'm reading now on, uh, you know, what Dr. Spock was saying to parents with their children and this big trend of parents seeking parental advice, which changes culture in how parents understand what they should do with their children. So if initially, um, sort of at the turn of the century, it was mostly, you know, food and health and pediatricians gave advice, doctors, uh, that has transformed and more psychologists have started giving advice, um, child rearing experts, it has become much more about paying attention to your child emotionally, um, spending time and so this investment in children's or investment parenting intensive parenting has traces back to the cultural changes in what we think we should do with our kids that has consequences for how we spend our money on kids but of course also economic broader macro changes have mattered uh, the fact that um, we have um, an increasing uh, surge of uh, women uh, not staying at home but going to work um, that's one one important factor uh, who takes care of children and the fact that we need to now pay for our child care um, because parents are both working and this you know this this could be taken up by uh, by support systems from uh, the state. One could have affordable, accessible, maybe even free childcare, but our system is not designed that way. So the fact how our state operates and what social welfare net is available to families also plays a role in how parents parent and that they mostly think they should shoulder um, the burden of parenting themselves. Then the, the last thing that I would mention is this rise of financialization that I've just discussed. So the role of the rise of finance in society and the availability of different financial instruments, just availability of, of uh, credit, giving loans to parents. And importantly, what I find is that parents are not, you know, increasing their credit card debt, uh, but in fact, they oftentimes have less than households without children, but they are increasing their mortgage debt and they're increasing their um, education debt. And that goes along the lines of investment parenting, you know, investing for the kids future is to invest in their education and both where you reside and what uh, school neighborhoods are available to you matters, but also directly taking on loans for your kids college, as I mentioned in the beginning. So how would you say the economic equality among households with children compares to households without children? That is an excellent question, and it's a very important issue. We all know that inequality has greatly increased in our society. Uh, usually we measure inequality by something called the Gini index, and that captures the distance between the richest 20% and the poorest 20% in society. 
so naturally a smaller genie would mean less inequality. Now I was just looking at some data from the Pew Research Center and Gini for income inequality in the US was 43 in 1990 and that has increased to 49 in 2018. And for comparison, for instance, Finland and Norway's Gini would be around 27 and around 60 even in places like South Africa. That's about income inequality in our society and we see a noticeable change. But what's most uh, more, more less known, I should say, is the increase in wealth inequality. And that has skyrocketed in the US. Uh, wealth means all the assets of a household uh, minus all the debts that households owe. We call this net worth. So the difference between the two assets and debt. And so while, for instance, lowest third of households in wealth um, have had around $12,000. Um, and that has kept constant since the 1980s. But what's important is that for the highest third of households, while the figure was around $300,000 in wealth in the 1980s. This has increased to more than $800,000 uh, today. So basically the rich have really become richer. And all these numbers I just mentioned are adjusted for inflation there in current dollars. And here's where we get to uh, households uh, with children. Most people know um, that um, inequality has grown. Fewer people understand this big difference between income inequality and wealth inequality, but even fewer know that the driving force of wealth inequality among family, among households, have been households that have children in their home. That is households who are raising children up to age 18 or through college. And so this is what drives my, uh, my inquiry. How do we understand what's going on in these households to drive this inequality? What do parents do for their kids that could be so different or had such different consequences for those who are um, on the lower uh, uh, spectrum in terms of wealth and the richer families? And I do believe that this financially intensive parenting, uh, where all the families try to do the best for their kids, but some of them have fewer, much fewer resources than others, that that in the end really contributes to greater inequality among households with children. And where, again, it's the greatest compared to any other type of household. And how do these debts associated with parenting vary among different demographics and groups? Very good question and a sociological question. We always, uh, often try to look at differences across um, demographic or socio-demographic uh, groups. And in particular, if we talk about debt, since you asked, uh, we should look at mortgage debt and education debt, both of them I've mentioned before. Uh, and those trends do depend uh, on the um, welfare, uh, wealth, um, sorry, position of families and also on 
the racial identification of the head of the household. With the data that we have available, we can distinguish uh, only um, those who identify as white, those who identify as black, and those who identify as Hispanic. We don't have further nuance in racial or ethnic backgrounds, unfortunately. But let's say for mortgage debt, uh, clearly those who are what we call above median wealth, that is uh, in the top 50% of wealth, have more mortgage debt, they um, can afford it, <laughs> and they might tend to reside in richer neighborhoods. So for instance, the below median wealth uh, households would have around $37,000 in mortgage debt, and the above median uh, wealth households would have around $174,000 in mortgage debt in 2016. But the mortgage debt has grown most, interestingly, for the above median wealth Hispanic families in this period that we study between 1998 to 2016. Now, we do note that the data set captures documented uh, uh, families, that is, those who have citizenship status. And so we have to take these figures uh, and uh, this caveat into account when we think about trends, but there has been some, some growth um, in um, sort of wealth position of Hispanic families that is in the positive direction. On the other hand, um, education debt shows stark inequality between white and black households. Um, it has uh, increased most starkly, and currently it is black uh, households with children that have the most uh, education debt. And when I say education debt here, I mean households where the head is 40 years or older, because we're interested in debt that is mainly for kids, not debt that they would take to, you know, go back to school, for instance. And, you know, unfortunately, no data are perfect. We can't exactly distinguish whether debt is for kids or for parents. But with those who are 40 years and older, we believe the majority of that debt will be for their children. And so in 2016, black families had around $14,000 of, uh, of education debt. And that was much more than, for instance, white uh, families who had around $5,800 uh, of, of education debt. And this is important because it influences intergenerational um, advantage or disadvantage. Right. And also it influences uh, more proximately uh, ability to save for retirement for families, which is undermined if parents take on so much debt burden for their kids to send them to college. So these are just a few of, of the things that we found considering uh, debt across different uh, sociodemographic groups. Right. Were, were there any findings of your research that surprised you? Yeah, that's, um, that's a good question because, uh, you know, you should always be open to, um, 
to hearing new things in research, even though mostly when we design our research, and especially if you have to submit a grant application, uh, it's required of you to think very carefully what in fact you uh, are expecting to find in the field, something we call hypothesis uh, um, and proposing something that we believe is going to be uh, substantiated with the data. But if I'm to speak about things that are surprising, for sure, I think I just was not aware of this big difference in wealth across uh, black and white families. Um, I knew there a lot about racial wealth gap, as we call this, but just how big it was, um, you know, that, that was a big surprise. So let me give you an example. With families that have children in the home and in our data set, the survey of consumer finances, the average wealth of families with children um, who identify as white is $97,000. So that's less than the average wealth for all the households, right? Because there are demands, special demands uh, for uh, families with children, but it's still $97,000. Now the same figure for families with children in black households is only $800. I mean, this is, it's 187 times, if I calculated correctly, greater for white families. That is tremendous difference and a huge disadvantage, structural disadvantage. So that's about the, the quantitative things. Um, then there are a couple of things in my qualitative data, which we're still analyzing. So um, take it with a grain of salt, but um, in the qualitative data, the surprises come mostly from what parents don't say. So for instance, uh, we talked about you know, the influences on parents and a big argument that the economy and how it has changed, it influences uh, what parents think they should do with their kids. None of the parents really discussed that. Um, they, when they talked about parenting, they rarely pointed out that because of the difficulties in the economy, the difficulties of finding jobs, they would be raising their kids differently. Um, they mostly say they want their kids to reach their potential. That's why, for instance, they want them to go to college. Not so much that you know they really need to have uh, good footing in the labor market. And I'm sure you know if you ask them, they would say that. But the initial thought was mostly to do the best for their kids in terms of their emotional support for children and um, to make sure these kids, their kids, realize their potential pursue their passions, if you will. And then another thing was um, what they didn't say was about um, any kind of considerations that it's not just on them as parents to, you know, be shouldering the costs of raising children. Okay, what, what do I mean? It just seems so taken for granted that it is parents who can pay for everything. Right. Little um, sort of awareness that maybe the state should be shouldering more of that burden, that uh, there should be um, um, 
paid paternity, uh, maternity leaves for parents. There should be uh, very low cost, affordable preschools uh, for kids or that uh, paying for college should not be on, on parents or, or kids themselves. So that is an interesting omission. Okay, and for a fun, what do you, do, do you think Sibel parents said when we asked them, you know, so you do a lot for kids, what would you expect your kids to do for you? What do you think parents said? Maybe taking care of them in their old age. <laughs> yeah, maybe, but not. These parents said nothing. Mostly they said, I don't expect my kids to do um, anything really for me. Maybe to love me, they said. Um, so I think this goes back to you know my sociological lens on the economy and how a lot of these decisions are not um, based on some rational cost and benefit analysis, but are very much influenced by emotions. Um, and so that that's a big it's a big lesson. Do you predict that these this trend of investment parenting and the economic equality that stems from it is going to increase in the coming years? Well, um, I think if we just leave things as they are, and of course the pandemic has, uh, has made a huge interruption in all of this, but I do believe that some of that investment parenting has contributed to inequality, and in particular because the rich parents can do so much more for their kids. Um, so that potentially that that inequality uh, would continue to increase because let me just give you an example. Even with the savings in 529 um, accounts that parents have, and um, for instance, the richest families have more than $50,000 that they put off pre-tax dollars into these accounts, which means they're making more money out of money that they already have, and they can leverage, um, you know, economists and sociologists say, their money. They make financial investments that are longer term. So again, it's an advantage to have kids if you're rich monetarily in many ways. But at the same time, of course, talked about debt, I had talked about inequality. So similar desire to do um, everything you can for your, your children with the best intentions would paradoxically then disadvantage um, the families with children who don't have these resources. So they de they're depleting their already meager resources. So you could see how this just widens the gap. Um, and yeah, without changes, it's unlikely to see that this would this would uh, abate. Um, and it's also very hard because what do you say to parents? Should you tell rich parents, oh, you know, you should just relax a little bit more. You should not be doing everything you think uh, you should for their kids. No, that's hardly advice anyone would take. Um, so cultural change in terms of what we believe we should be doing for our kids is probably going to be even harder than structural changes or some structural reforms that I spoke about before in terms of you know shouldering more of that cost, not by parents themselves, but by state and federal funding provisions.
I just hope that more people will uh, be thinking like sociologists these days um, when we are all struggling so much in the current times, uh, not only the pandemic, but calls for social justice, not only from one individual's perspective, one's choice, but the fact that there are structures in society that influence how things are done, which also means that we could change those structures. Do appreciate so much this opportunity to talk to you, Savelle, and uh, to speak about my research. Best wishes to everyone these days. Thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Thanks again. And take care, Sabelle. All the best. You too. That was Dr. Nina Bandelge, a sociologist at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. I'm Sabelle Kaler, and this has been Office Hours. You can listen to past episodes at bit.ly slash officehourskuci. And you can also contact me at c-k-a-e-h-l-e-r at k-u-c-i.org. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great day. Stay safe, and be kind to each other out there.